0: So I guess it's a farm and your hobby is to take care of the farm. That's what it means, right? Or is it like a hobby horse that's on the farm? What's a hobby farm? I don't know. I
1: don't know, actually.
0: We should have asked, what is a hobby farm? Oh
1: my God, why didn't we ask?
0: Do you think it's like a farm where people come and they like write novels and do crochet and then, or they like play video games, like whatever their hobby is?
1: I think it's just a small farm. I think it's just Uh, a small farm.
0: Oh, that's probably right. Yep. Pretty sure. cool. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I'm joined as always by my friend, producer, podcast expert extraordinaire, Sylvie LeBeau. Sylvie, welcome.
1: Glad to be here always in a turtleneck today because it's turtleneck weather.
0: Oh, yes. And I'm wearing a nice... Uh, <laughs> Salmon summer t-shirt. I'm trying to hold on to the summer. <laughs> Someone's got to hold on. Someone's got to remember what it was like.
1: You're right. You'd be that for all of us. Okay,
0: I will. <laughs> Great. Well, we have a very exciting interview today with Michelle Hansen, who's the co-founder of GeoCodio, a geocoding SaaS company, which she and her husband started in 2014. She also has a book, Deploy Empathy, which is all about really doing great customer interviews and understanding what your customers really want. And she looks at that as like the core for how she and her husband have built their business, which I can disclose, I believe, is over a million in revenue when they have two employees. No big deal.
1: What?
0: Yeah. Wouldn't how that be nice? did they
1: do it? Yeah. Yes, that actually would be. Like when I read that, I was like, wow, that would be amazing.
0: Is that really what you said? Or are you like, damn her? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Let's get real, Sylvie. Let's get real. What was the actual emotional response when you saw that?
1: You know, it's simultaneous joy and envy.
0: <laughs> it's, it's both. That's nice. You know, it's nice to get real. It's nice to get real with everyone. You know, of course, there's going to be, I understand, some envy and some joy. It's like, this, this can happen. This is the world we live in now. This is wow. craft software inspiring. creation, right?
1: <laughs> go sass or go home. That's what I would say. Okay,
0: go sass or go home. Wow, look at all this lingo. <laughs> <laughs> Throw that DTC in there with the NFT and we are gonna be all good.
1: <laughs> you mean we're gonna
0: be AG, come on. <laughs> oh man, what am I doing? What am I thinking?
1: Well, what's got you talking too loud?
0: Oh. Um, or do you
1: wanna know what's got me talking too loud? You know,
0: I'm kinda, I feel like I've been dominating the talking too loud recently, but I, I am wondering what's what's got you talking too loud, Sylvie?
1: Okay, I need to tell you, Halloween last weekend, dressed up as Agent Scully, walked into one of my favorite bars, and won me a pumpkin spice candle. Wow. You won a a competition? I won. I did.
0: So you're telling me the winner of this (laughs) Halloween costume competition that you went to won a stupid candle?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A stupid candle? (laughs) How dare you insult my Or was it like an, it was an
0: honorable mention? Like, I, I'm just shocked that people would get dressed up and then the winner would actually receive a candle.
1: I'll tell you, I didn't even know there was a costume contest going on. Okay. I right. ordered a drink and with that drink came a congratulations. You won our costume contest. Here's a candle.
0: All right. Well, then that's fantastic. It's incredible to win a contest you had no idea you were in.
1: Exactly.
0: That's the dream. It's the dream. Yeah. It does sound a little bit like they had an extra candle lying around that they had to get rid of.
1: I swear you are you are raining on my parade right now. Let me I have I will it. say
0: I did see the costume. I saw it was a couple's costume, right? It was it was. Okay. And um I did see that on uh on on Instagram you looked very into the X-files. You looked like you're ready to hunt aliens.
1: Mm-hmm. The um, truth is out no, there. But the
0: costume looked great. It really did. I think it deserved the candle. It was
1: yeah. a real fun one. Leaned into Halloween. I'm ready for next year. So you're holding on to summer. I'm holding on to Halloween.
0: That's great. That's you know great. what else
1: we're both holding on to? What? A copy of Deploy Empathy.
0: Yes, <laughs> we are both holding on to copies of Michelle's book, Deploy Empathy. A great read about really getting to the bottom of what your customers want and what they need. Um, And I love the interview with Michelle, it was really fun. I tried to trip her up with some questions around government feedback and other things. And she just did her little Jedi trick on me and flipped it around and started asking me questions. So I'm excited for you to listen to this interview, excited to go deep in on customer interviews, how to do them better. And I'll let the interview that you and I already recorded uh, take it away. Michelle, thank you for being here. So excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. You having a good week? I am. What about you? It's been good. I'm particularly excited because, you know, they just approved the vaccine for kids like five and up. So my my daughter Zoe is going to be vaccinated next week, which is very exciting. How old is she? She is six.
2: Okay. So my daughter is eight and we're still waiting on the EU to oh, approve, which okay. hopefully is soon. Uh, trying to get any info we can on the EU's approval I'm process. sure it'll be soon. But yeah, I mean, yeah, matter of weeks, hopefully. But yes. I'm really happy yes. for everyone in the US. Such a relief.
0: Yes. It's crazy that it's actually here at this moment in time. Um, wait, where in Europe are you? Denmark. Denmark. Wow. How is it over there right now?
2: Uh, it's a little bit rainy, but otherwise things are good.
0: That's great. I'm going to assume because you moved to Denmark, there's like a reason why that is.
2: Oh, so my husband is originally Danish. Uh, We were in the US for 10 years. And then last summer, we came here um, initially for a year. uh, We'd wanted to do a family study abroad year for a long time for our daughter to become fluent. And after we were here for a couple of months, we really just found that we really loved it. And it's certainly quite a big transition from living... A couple minutes outside DC to now living on a six-acre hobby farm in the Danish countryside, <laughs> um, but it's been really wonderful.
0: That's awesome. Well, look, so excited to have you on Talking Too Loud. Um, the show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, as you can tell, I can't control the volume of my voice. <laughs> um, I know everyone does different things, but I'm I'm wondering what's got you talking too loud these days.
2: Uh, it's sort of a, an ironic answer to that because I wrote a book this summer called Deploy Empathy about interviewing customers. And ironically, when you're interviewing a customer, uh, you should speak in your most calm, harmless voice as possible. But there is literally nothing I love more than talking to people about talking to people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gotta keep it meta.
2: Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right, well, so I wanna get to the book. But first, you're in a company, it's called GeoCodio. What is GeoCodio? Uh, for those who don't know
2: so geocodio is a SaaS company um, and basically what we do is we help with location data so um, a computer does not understand an address it only understands coordinates for example whenever you pull up a maps app on your phone and you type in an address what's going on in the background is that that address is getting converted into coordinates and then the distance is being calculated So what we do is we help people convert addresses to coordinates, but then also coordinates to addresses since humans don't really understand coordinates. And then there are all these other pieces of information that are only available if you have the coordinates. So the coordinates are kind of like this doorway to information. For example, if you want somebody's time zone or their congressional district or census data or anything like that, you have to have the coordinates first as this sort of core connecting piece. So that's what we do. We help people connect location data for North America.
0: How big is the team? It's just my husband and I. Okay, so there's the two of you. Mm -hmm. And you are solving a problem, which is helping people understand, uh, you know, how coordinates match up what coordinates are for different addresses and stuff. How did you even get into this? I mean, it doesn't seem like a thing that two people can solve, especially not for one continent or many continents. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so we actually started it because it was a problem that we had ourselves. This is going back to 2012 or so. My husband and I had started this app that allowed you to see the grocery and convenience store hours near you. So you basically could pull it up. So if you needed milk at midnight or a coffee at 3 a.m. And at the time you couldn't just type in, you know, Starbucks or Harris Teeter, um, you actually had to remember, okay, this is the store that's near me. Let me go to their website. Let me put in my zip code. Let me find the store that's nearest to me. Let me find their opening hours. And if you're super tired in the middle of the night, you don't have the brain power for that. So you could just open it up and it would show that to you. The app was growing, which was good. But the problem we ran into was that we could only get 2,500 free locations per day from Google. um, And we weren't allowed to store the data. And it was growing. And at one point, we needed like 5,000 a day. And so our options were either 2,500 for free Or pay like tens of thousands of dollars a year for an enterprise plan. And we're like, we're making like 400 bucks a month off of this app. Like, we can't really afford an enterprise (laughs) plan. So we ended up spinning up our own super rudimentary geocoder. Um, And as we talked to other friends who were developers, they had a similar problem. And they're like, hey, like maybe you guys could just like slap a paywall in front of this. And, um, you know, other people could pay to keep the servers running, so you don't have to pay for them. And we're like, oh, that would be sweet, like, for other people paid the server costs. So we launched it in January of 2014 as a side project with very low expectations. Um, our definition of success was covering the server costs, which was $20 nice. a month. Uh,
0: yeah, We let's made go. $31.
2: <laughs> we were over the moon. Yeah. Um, and then got a ton of feedback in the beginning, because we spent the first day on Hacker News on the front page, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's um, a rush.
0: That's that's a huge amount of traffic day one. Yeah.
2: I mean, we've never equaled it. Like you look at our analytics and like you, you basically just have to filter out the first couple of days because it's yeah. just <laughs> such an anomaly. Like, well, it's
0: not a problem you would think you would have. You wouldn't think like, <laughs> like here I am seven years later, like the first few days. But that's amazing, though, because I'm sure you got exactly to the right people, you know, who would actually want this, right?
2: I mean it w- it was really good. We got a lot of feedback. I feel like we had hundreds of emails from people being like, "Hey, can you guys do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? Can you do that?" And because we don't come from the geography space, we come from a development perspective. We'd be like, "Can you like tell us why you need that? Like what are you yeah. using that for? And like what what do you currently use for that?" So one of those for example, like turning coordinates into addresses. Like that hadn't even occurred to us and we're like, "So what are you even doing? Like why do you need that?" Um, and, you know, it turns out like so a lot of GPS devices, they're sending back coordinates. So, for example, a uh, customer I talked to once, they told us how they have software that's installed on tractors all over the country. And these tractors send back reports daily on the health of the tractor. And so not only are they getting coordinates back, but they also need to get the time zones back and they need to make sure that the tractor sending back a report at midnight in Delaware is correctly timestamped as midnight in Delaware, even though they are in Texas. And then they also have tractors in California and like everything is coming back saying, yes, it's in Delaware. And that was that was the day was on. Um, Also, like uploading spreadsheets. We initially just launched as API only and people are like hey this is awesome but you know currently like if i need to geocode a spreadsheet i have to like send it to this guy and then he gets back to me in a couple of days and we're like this sounds like a good opportunity for software to solve that um and so that was i mean one of the ways i really got interested in talking to customers and learning from customers was that sort of crazy experience of getting inundated with feedback from hacker news and then seeing how much it grew our company. um, Because I went full time on the business three years later. And when we launched it, it was intended to be a side project. We never really even dreamed that we might run it full time.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting. And I think you're, you obviously know this, but like not knowing your story until now, thinking about the fact that, all right, you're making this other startup, and we're gonna help you understand these times. And then like the geocoding thing, what the heck is this? Like, I'm not an expert in this, I'm not gonna do this. And then from the very beginning, it seems like it's embedded in your culture, the interviewing of customers to understand them so deeply. And yes, you had the problem that you were solving for, which you know a lot of businesses start that way. Um, but it seems like in this case, you just kept going and going and going. And that's led to building a successful business and also writing the book, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think just sort of continually listening and our mission statement is actually kind of kind of bad for a reason that you'll figure out once I say it. That um, we describe <laughs> it as GIS for non-GIS people, and the first <laughs> question I get when I say that is, "What is GIS?" <laughs> exactly.
0: That's, that's funny. <laughs>
2: Just geographic information systems, which is what geocoding is, and so I think that kind of keeps us, you know, reminds us of like always ask why somebody needs something, what's what's leading them to do it, and also that most of our customers, you know, we have many customers who are geographers who do have geography backgrounds. Um, But a lot of them are, you know, marketing people who need to see where their salespeople are or, you know, insurance companies trying to understand the risk on properties. It's not software that's geography software built for the geography industry. It's geography built for everybody
0: else. So what do you think about the advice that people should always follow their passion?
2: I I feel like I, I like to follow what's interesting to me and what seems like I can get reasonably paid for it. Um, you know, I mean, you don't have to monetize all of your passions, right? But, um, I think following the things that, that get you really excited can lead you in interesting directions. And sometimes you make something out of that. And sometimes you don't, but it can certainly lead you to interesting places that you would not have ended up
0: in otherwise. Because you seem passionate about a number of things to me. You seem <laughs> passionate about interviewing customers. You also seem pretty passionate about GIS. Yeah,
2: I mean, I just as a person, I really, I love overcoming something that feels out of my grasp, like that I don't understand at all. And like when I have that moment where I feel like kind of embarrassed that I don't understand something, if I can overcome that and then like sink my teeth into something, I become like rabidly passionate about it, even if it's like a completely unproductive thing. So an example of this <laughs> is my undergraduate thesis, which was on U.S. and German monetary relations in the early 1970s.
0: Whoa, OK. And <laughs> so it's a passion, but like
2: it's not remotely relevant to anything that I do. But that kind of came out of, you know, freshman year of college. People talking about Bretton Woods and me being like. So embarrassed feeling like everybody else knew what was going on and I didn't and I didn't know this Bretton Woods thing. And then I like started sinking my teeth into it. Um, And then I think, you know, also with customer interviewing, like, you know, when you're interviewing someone, you're listening to them, you're sort of fully engaging in what they're saying, holding back your own opinions, your own perspective. And As you can tell, I'm a pretty naturally enthusiastic person. And when I get really excited about something, it's really hard for me to not jump in and relate my own experience and finish someone's sentences and like just really get excited with them. Um, And so in a way, like active listening is something that I was really bad at and really, really had to focus on. And then so the fact that I was bad at it and then really had to like sort of go down to first principles and understand it turned out made me good at explaining it to other people.
0: I mean, that's amazing. And also, what an amazing drive to have that like basically when you have a challenge, you want to overcome it. I mean, that's like incredible entrepreneurial spirit. And I think most people, if they could just tap into that, um, as long as they're not just going and studying like 1970s, like, uh, you know, German monetary policies, they can probably do really productive, exciting things. But um, what would be your advice? For someone listening who's thinking like, hey, I want to tackle a big problem. You know, our, our audience is investors, it's marketers, it's entrepreneurs, it's creatives. And there's a lot of people who are trying to tackle big things or they have like an exciting idea for a business, um, but they don't know when to start or should they start or can they do it? What would be your advice to somebody about how can you, how can you cultivate that drive? Can uh- you...
2: So people have heard me talk before will know what I'm about to say, and it is to go out and talk to people. Um, I think one of the most important things we can do is to step outside of our own perspective and try to understand what other people's conceptualization of something is, whether that's a problem you're thinking of solving or anything that you're really interested in. You know, how do other people perceive this? What are they trying to do? What how do things look from their perspective? And check your own perspective as much as possible and really just try to submerge yourself into the people that would be the audience for whatever it is you want to create and understand what are they trying to do? What what are what are their goals? What are their what are they already doing? Maybe that's kind of in a similar vein and why why doesn't that work for them? And really just just sort of like a sponge, just sort of absorb as much as you can from them and hold back as much as you can about your own perspective and opinion about it.
0: That's great advice. I have a friend who is constantly talking about starting things, but um, they move from idea to idea and they have trouble figuring out like, is this good or not? And I, I've tried to tell them like, hey, I think you just need to launch something or I think you need to talk to people. And I think they get like nervous on like how will they find the people to talk to? So mm-hmm. what would be your advice for somebody to figure out who should they talk to? How do they get those people to interview? Like if you really have just an idea, like how do you actually do it?
2: So I have two answers to that question, and they're in very different directions. The first one is that as somebody who's been diagnosed with ADHD myself, I have to wonder whether that person should explore getting diagnosed for ADHD mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that sounds familiar, and and I. I, you know, I say that quite seriously and not flippantly. Yeah. Um, actually, I have a lot of friends who are getting diagnosed with ADHD as adults, and it can be a, a difficult journey, but also incredibly enlightening for them and help a lot of things in their life make sense and help them move from feeling ashamed that they never finish things to understanding why and then reorienting how they work and how they pursue things in a way that aligns with their brain rather than forcing themselves into a neurotypical box and remove some of that shame that they might feel about pursuing things or not pursuing them. The second one is really, I think, more what you were asking. Um, See where people are hanging out. You know, it's always helpful if you have some insight into an industry or community already that you want to solve for. You can build understanding for an audience that you don't have any prior understanding of, but it's going to be a lot higher of a hurdle. And you see this all the time with people starting projects. Just start with something that Um, is a pain that's that's something that you have that you it's a community that you have close contact to whether it's because you're a part of it or you have a close friend or family member who is part of it and then just kind of see where those people hang out online Uh, this approach is called sales safari there's some great courses uh, by amy hoy on sales safari and where are they are they on reddit are they on facebook groups like where are they talking about what their problems are Um, Are there any problems they have that are interesting to you or that relate to some problems you thought you might be able to solve? And then once you have found them, then see if you can get them to talk to you about those problems and understand what they're trying to do and what they're using to solve that and get some ideas going about things that you might be able to create.
0: I love that advice. And Amy Hoy is the best. Do you know Amy? Did you go through her courses?
2: Uh, we're Twitter friends and uh, both really interested in the topic. I actually, I have not gone through her courses. I feel like I should just to audit them, but I know so many people with successful businesses who have come out of her courses. We're really on the same page um, about understanding customers and taking sort of an anthropological approach to it. Um, and I think where my approach to differs from hers is that I want people to really go out and and talk to people, um, where her approach is more, you know, sort of going in and sort of observing their environment, but not necessarily, um, you know, getting on the phone with them. But like, I recommend her courses in my book, you know, our approaches are very much aligned with one another, though, uh, admittedly, these days, our, our DMs are, are not full of conversations about customer research, but we both share <sighs> A passion for uh, antique chairs. So that's usually what we talk about. Okay,
0: good. That's great. <laughs> it's funny. I met Amy once at a conference like near her house, and we were hanging out. And then she took this whole crew of us like around in some different bars and stuff. And she's like, come back to my house. And we went to her house. And she and her husband, the first people I've ever seen who had like the LED colored lights that like were like automated. And so they're like, Hey, everyone, check this out. This is like seven years ago or something. And is it like the Philips Hue
2: bulbs? Or? Yeah, it was like
0: the Philips Hue bulbs, okay. but I don't think I'd ever seen them before. And they're like, watch this. And they're like, <laughs> change the whole room and it was red. They changed, it. And everyone was like, ah, oh, this is so cool. I feel like it was like <laughs> such a crazy thing. Anyway, um I love that you have that relationship with with her and that the two of you are chatting chairs. It's just more good evidence that like there's a niche for everything. And uh, apparently <laughs> antique chairs is one of them and customer <laughs> research is another. But I digress. So um tell us about the book. Tell us about Deploy Empathy. <laughs> um, what made you decide to write the book?
2: So, uh it's it's kind of a long story, but um I know you talked to Tyler Tringus a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an investor in his fund Calm Company Fund. And so within Calm I kind of became known as like a sort of customer research person. So whenever founders in the the portfolio companies in the fund um, had problems that could be solved by talking to customers. So they'd return problem. They're trying to figure out some marketing things. They're the questions about roadmaps and product development, all kinds of stuff. Um, people would just get kicked over to me and I would hop on a call with them. And I realized at some point sort of last winter that I was talking to founders regularly about talking to customers, but I didn't feel like I had one solid resource to send them that was both rigorous from a UX perspective, but also written at the level of somebody who did not have a UX background. So there's so many good books on jobs to be done and customer interviewing, but a lot of them assume a certain level of UX or product background, which if you're, you know, a developer founder, you may not have that background. And the things that they say sort of in a sentence like, you know, don't interrupt and ask follow-up questions. It's like, well, What does a follow-up question look like? What should they say? Like, what does not interrupting mean? Like, what if they say there's something wrong with your product? Can you interrupt them then? Like, all of these things (laughs) that relate to, like, mistakes that people make through no fault of their own because they don't have enough preparation. Um, There's a great book called The Mom Test. I'm sure you've come across Mm -hmm. it, which introduces a lot of um, people kind of in my world to the concept of talking to customers. And that focuses on the discovery phase and what i found is people also need help talking to customers in other phases. So, what if you're trying to solve a churn problem? What if you're trying to figure out which features to build next? What if you want to figure out why customers are happy and why they stick around so you can get more people are happy and stop attracting people who would be unhappy, who don't have use cases that are well solved. So that kind of led to the idea of a book. Um and so i started writing it at the end of february as a newsletter, mostly because everybody who's ever written a book that i've talked to talked about how lonely of a process it is and we were like mid Scandinavian winter in lockdown and I was like I don't need any more loneliness in my life so I was like (laughs) I'm gonna do this socially I'm gonna start it as a newsletter and then if it turns into a book great but like worst case scenario I have all this stuff written up so that I have like scripts to send people to I have all the sort of tips for how to talk in a way that gets people to open up Um, that I can just send people to and I've made myself more efficient rather than sending them these sort of like jumbled emails that are like read the middle part of this book and then read these two chapters over here and then listen to this podcast and then here's all this other stuff they didn't tell you that you need to know that were like these really just long like jumbled messy emails Um, and so I started writing it and you know to my delight discovered that people wanted to do it you know I always thought that customer interviews were a vitamin and not a painkiller. And it turns out that they're like a gummy vitamin and people don't mind taking them. <laughs> um, so it's been really fun. So then in July, published the book. And it's been really exciting um, talking to people about what they've been able to get out of the book.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome to put it together. And I, I read the book. And there is something I think you're right that, that a lot of folks assume previous experience. A lot of the other like research um, product insight books are like, you know, designed for someone in, in a large company who is like upping their game versus like someone who's starting. Where do I begin? Like who who do yeah. I talk to? And like, do I observe it? Especially if it's the first time you're you're doing this. And I think it's especially in a world where it's become so much easier to start things. There's so many services and tools we can use. Obviously everyone's remote now, all of these things, it was very refreshing to read. I think it's like anyone listening if you're considering starting something, Um, this is something you should definitely put into your tool belt as like, uh, if you can, if you can get really good at interviewing customers and deploy empathy will help you do that. I think it can really, you know, increase your chances of, of making something that's valuable. Are there companies that you look at that we all know, and you think to yourself, wow, they must be incredible at customer research or the opposite. Do you see companies that you look at that we know and you're like, they must be truly terrible.
2: Oh, uh that is such a good question. Um one that I love that won't surprise you after reading the book is Stripe. Um as a longtime Stripe user, when we launched, we used Stripe um and have been very happy customers the last, you know, 8 years. I have been interviewed by several of their teams, and what I love is they not only have UX people doing interviews, but they have developers doing interviews. They have product managers doing interviews. They have all of these different people on the teams participating in their interviews, which I think is really, really remarkable because when everybody on the team understands who the customer is and what they're trying to do, it just makes everything so much easier because you spend less time in planning meetings being like, Okay, wait, so hold on, why do we need this? And who is this for? And like, like, and you can just see it in the velocity that they ship and, and the products that they ship. And and another company I love is Intercom. And of course, you know, the founder of Intercom, Des Trainer, is a very prominent jobs to be done advocate and yes. has written books on it himself. And that is another product that I happily pay for because They just really get it. Um, They really get trying to solve the whole process and solving adjacent problems and how much easier that makes it to use a product. And I know that there are cheaper alternatives that we could be using, but the workflow is just so solid that it's worth it.
0: And is there anybody who you look at and you're like, they must be doing a terrible job of (laughs) talking to their customers?
2: So I think there's a lot of those examples, and there's a lot of organizations where. They ignore their customers or they're dismissive towards them. Um, Some companies have this perspective that, you know, only customer service talks to customers and then everyone else is sort of above that or better than that. And that is not a perspective that I share. And I think some really great companies, you know, are ones that make everybody do regular rotations on customer service. Quite frankly, I think there's so many companies that do not do customer research or customer integration well, there's just too many to name.
0: Okay. I thought maybe we were going to get like Twitter. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it was going to be some very prominent. (laughs)
2: Twitter's actually doing really well now. I guess I was just talking to someone about this this morning, like the speed at their shipping and how cool the stuff that they are putting out. Like I just saw this morning that they're going to add something about like professional profiles and all this stuff with review i mean i started using review for my newsletter because i was like you know they just got acquired by twitter like Mm -hmm. maybe this is going to be sort of like early medium where like everyone used medium because they had such great distribution through twitter um so it's like maybe this is gonna be like that and like they just keep adding stuff and like i really want to know the inside story of twitter's product dev like the last year, year and a half, because something changed, like some incentives yeah, within the organization are changed, or, change, yeah. or leadership changed, and like, you don't have this kind of change that they've gone through from basically, I feel like they were kind of stumbling for a long time, and I say this as both an active Twitter user and a Twitter shareholder who has hung on, um, <laughs> that, I guess like, there's just so much value in this platform, they have to figure out how to fully monetize it eventually, like, that's why I kept the holding um, I really want to know like what changed because, it, you know, it's not just there were researchers within the company that really wanted to engage customers or product people who really cared about what people are doing and wanted to serve better things like you don't get this level of shipping and change and improvements without some strategic level refocusing and incentive shifting on product. And I hope, you know, somebody there's like some journalist who's going to write an amazing book on this in a couple of years and give us that sort of fly-on-the-wall perspective of what's going on at Twitter right now because it seems kind of magical.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting too because like it seems like they just didn't change anything for a long time. To me, it seemed like fear of there's so many different uses of Twitter. It's such a baseline utility that it was like, how can they add this other functionality without like destroying what the core was? And I agree with you that over the last year or so, it seems like it's changing. And like one thing they're doing is making it so that you can use an NFT as your profile photo, and then supposedly linking it back to the blockchain. And it's an interesting thing, because I saw it, I was like, how many, there's only like 300,000 people on the NFT platforms that are even buying NFTs. So it's like a pretty small number of folks for them to like add the feature. And I was wondering like, how did they decide to do this because, I mean, definitely three years ago, they wouldn't have made a change at all. They would have just, okay, like people are, why why do we need to add this functionality?
2: Yeah. If I remember correctly, I feel like there's sort of leadership level positions where, like, I think like head of product at Twitter was a little bit like of a defense against the dark arts position for a while, where it was just like a new person in and out uh, yeah. every nine months or so. And things seem really stable and there's velocity. And that's really interesting. How do you take a product and a company that was kind of static for a long time and then all of a sudden just have this explosion of of like creativity and innovation. I'm so curious.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I guess you're long Twitter. So that's your financial advice for today is everyone should buy a Twitter stock.
2: <laughs> oh, God. Uh, no.
0: <laughs> no,
2: I'm, I'm holding. I'm not necessarily buying more, but I'm definitely holding.
0: <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, this is a bit of a wild card, but I was thinking about this after I read your book, which is... We've been talking about the value of customer insights for companies, talking about it for Twitter, talking about it for yourselves, talking about it for Wistia, all these different companies. Everyone could do it. But what about governments? Oh,
2: 100%. There's some really cool efforts I've come across to get um, governments to like better understand their public. And there's um, actually, I think it's in like, I don't know if it was a government project. You know, the book Service Design, it's a Rosenfeld book no um there's an example okay it's a really good book and there's an example in there on like designing a better like rail system like ticketing rail system and i want to say it was in england so it might have actually been run by the government and they did all of this awesome research on like understanding all of the different pieces that people go through to like have a train journey so yeah i think there's tons of opportunity for governments to to do this kind of research absolutely
0: and how do you think about it? I mean, the United States is obviously hyper-polarized, becoming more polarized by the day. If you're working in the US government today, what advice would you give somebody You know, when their research is directly conflicting?
2: What do you? So can you say more about what you mean when their research is directly conflicting? Sure,
0: like if you're talking to customers and you find that people want the opposite thing. I mean, it could be a government, it could be a company. Yeah. You know, it could be anything. But like, I think this trips up a lot of folks, definitely has tripped us up. When we go and talk to people, who are like, your product is too expensive. And then you talk to somebody else who looks very similar and they're like, your product is actually so cheap, I don't think it could work. I'm like, okay, interesting. Like what advice would you give to somebody who is going through doing research about how to to manage insights that are the opposite of each other?
2: I'll answer your question, but first I have a question. Um, Please. You said customers that look like each other. Do they look like each other in terms of demographics like company size or do they look like each other in yes, terms of the question. activity they're trying to solve?
0: Yes. So, uh when I said that just then I was thinking about companies that were the same size and the activities they were doing looked similar. Of course you dig in and they're different. Like, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's always the answer. But like I I think the thing that was on my mind is like whether or not we talked about vaccines at the beginning, like if people think the vaccine is horrible and made up and like going to cause all these problems versus like people who are like myself who can't wait to get it. How do you pull that apart in terms of like what the messaging should be?
2: So from a from a company perspective and maybe, you know, government services perspective, um, one thing I wanted to do with the book was kind of have it be a signpost to other places. As you mentioned, this sort of, I mean, product in general can be really sort of a, an overwhelming field for people to kind of wander into. And it's sort of like, where do I go? And one expert I find myself coming back to that I reference in the book is Marty Kagan, head of Silicon Valley product group, like arguably one of the foremost product leaders. And he has this framework for understanding product opportunities and what makes great products. And that is that the product has to be valuable from the user perspective. So it has to solve a problem they have. It has to be usable by them. It doesn't matter if you create something awesome if they can't figure out how to use it. It has to be viable from the company's perspective. It needs to make you money or be, you know, commercially viable for you. Um, and then it also needs to be feasible technically. You need to be actually be able to deliver the thing. And I come back to that. And I also come back to the pain and frequency framework, which is something that I picked up sort of is it's in you lean UX a little bit, but I think. Des Trainer, he has this one blog post that I probably send to people like once a month that is um, not all good products make good businesses. And he talks about this pain and frequency and finding the most frequent, most painful problems. And I think to what we were just saying, you can't just think about sort of people or companies demographically. I very much come from a activity centered design perspective, which is that you design for similar activities. So one customer who says your product is too cheap versus one who says it's too expensive, even if their companies are the exact same size, exact same revenue, exact same existence and industry and everything, they actually may be doing very, very different things under the hood and perceive very different competitors to what it is that you do. Um, And that makes the solution more valuable for them because maybe that one who thinks it's too cheap, their need for it is actually much more frequent and it's much more painful than this other company that doesn't actually do anything with video yet and they're just exploring it and it's not really a problem that they have, but they're kind of thinking about it. And looking at the companies demographically or similarly people demographically is not going to tell you what they're trying to accomplish and why they want to accomplish it. And it's also not going to tell you if, You know, so even if there is a problem to be solved that is frequent and painful for someone, it's not going to tell you whether that's going to be commercially viable for you to solve. It's not going to tell you whether that is technically feasible for you to solve. It's not going to tell you whether you're able to create something that is usable by that person. And so you need to fulfill all of those criteria um, in order to figure out what can you solve. Um, I mean, the political question is a whole (laughs) is is a whole nother one. Um, You know, Justin Jackson from Transistor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on his podcast a couple months ago, and we we're talking about empathy and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you know, I get this from a company perspective. But like, you know, can I also use this to, you know, argue with my aunt on Facebook about <laughs> politics? And I was like, uh, I mean, yes, you can use empathy in, the, in that situation. And I think we all should a little bit more. But like, I, I feel like that is... uh Out of my realm of expertise, advising people how to, you know, have those conversations and even, you know, motivational interviewing, which is a um, practice developed by medical practitioners to help um, patients understand a course of treatment and get their buy in on a course of treatment and understand why they aren't going to do something. So, for example, um, Adam Grant and his new book, he has an example about motivational interviewing and using that to understand why people might have hesitations about vaccines Um, and what i found really interesting about that was starting it from the perspective of you know you've done all this research i can tell that you really care about your children and starting it from that point of common ground and even if their conclusion from that point of common ground is very different than what your perspective or like my perspective is um starting from that place and saying okay what this person thinks makes sense from their perspective. How do I understand why it makes sense from their perspective? And then is there something I can use in there to kind of nudge them towards a different perspective? But admittedly, I will be the first to say that motivational interviewing is not an area of my expertise and, uh, there's there's probably other people who could talk better about that. I've I've tried it a little bit with my own conversations about vaccines, and sometimes it's gone well and sometimes it hasn't. So I feel like I'm very much
0: still learning in that regard. Well, if it's gone well at all, it seems like it's probably working. Um, and I know we're running out of time, but um, what's got you talking too loud about Denmark right now?
2: Oh, about Denmark. That's such an interesting question. Um You know what? I have to say that um, on Monday, I got my first opportunity to kind of meet other people in this world in Denmark at uh, CPH UX. Um, They had a meetup about remote customer research, which is basically doing customer research over the Internet, which is what I do a lot of. (laughs) And I got a chance to speak there and meet a bunch of people and I think the thing about living in the countryside is I don't meet a lot of people in my daily life who do this weird running an internet business thing. And so as a person, I always like to be in situations where I don't feel weird. It's always very reassuring to me to know that there are other people interested in similar things as me. Um, And so that was really, really fun. And I'm so excited to do more with the uh, entrepreneurial and UX communities in Copenhagen. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on.
0: That's awesome. I'm so glad you found your people even there, right near the hobby farm. You're ready to get people on those six acres. You give six people, each person has an acre to themselves, and (laughs) then you can slowly move towards one acre. It'll be amazing. Um, Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, Where can people find you and follow up to learn more?
2: Yeah. So uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, perhaps not unexpectedly after uh, our conversation earlier. Uh, I am at MJW hansen. My book is called Deploy Empathy. You can find it on Amazon. Also at deployempathy.com. You can read uh, like basically the first 50 pages of the book and buy other versions of it, subscribe to my newsletter uh, and whatnot. So that's deployempathy.com.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today and uh, have a great day. Have a great week. The Denmark lifestyle, six acres, six acres to herself. That's that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I had lots of more envy, really more envy when she was describing those acres and more joy. And we're, but in addition to farms, I thought it was super interesting because Michelle is so steeped in customer research and customer interviewing to think about that through a broader lens and thinking about governments and how they engage with their citizenship. And like with everything that's going on right now, the pandemic, climate change, it seems super crucial. What was your takeaway from that part of the convo?
0: I mean, yeah, I think she basically was like, you're not going deep enough on the questions if you feel like you're not getting the feedback. Um, Yeah. And that is, of course, the right answer is to like get in there and understand people's real motivations. I think the thing that is challenging is when you have like a very diverse base of people you're trying to understand. It's like if you set your target customer to be too broad. Mm-hmm. You can't zero in enough to understand what people really want unless like you're solving like the most broad extreme problem, um, in which case you're tackling probably a monumental thing that's like innate. So yeah, I thought that part of the conversation was really interesting. Um, I, I love how they found their business almost like accidentally by interviewing people And so it's like, oh, I have to get really good at this to solve this geocoding thing, because this is not what I planned on doing. And then, of course, she got so good at it, and she got passionate about it, which I think is how it works for most people. Like, you know, success follows passion, where you find something that works, and then you become more passionate about it, and it could be anything. But um, that was just cool to see her walking through that, and then writing the book and being the expert amongst those other people. The comm community was just... Nice to think about and like I think even powerful to think about the business she's built, right? Like think about how incredible it is to own a business with two people. It's like a million in revenue, it's amazing. And it's totally possible in today's like world where we're all so interconnected and the niches are so big. Um, and I think that it's just great to have her story out there so that I'm sure it will inspire more people. Our listeners. Well, anyone who's listened to this. Definitely yeah. our yeah. listeners. But um, speaking of our listeners, it's probably that time, Sylvie. It's that time. That time. To tell the listeners what we want and need. Um, listeners, what we want is uh, we want your feedback. We want you to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it. We want your emails at ttlpod at wistia.com. And if you love the show, recommend it to other people who you think would love it. Got to get that word out there, growing that talking to loud audience. And of course... Head to Wistia.com, check out the other amazing content that we have. Gear Squad versus Dr. Boring is out. It's amazing. It's funny. It's ridiculous. And we also have the incredible like asset library with it. Lots of other stuff. So go to Wistia.com and see all the other stuff from Wistia Studios. And have a great day or morning or night. I don't really know when people listen to this. They listen to it in the middle of the night. What do you think?
1: Whoa, middle of the night listeners? I like them.
0: I think Silent Adam is actually one.
1: He's a 2 a.m.er.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: Well, good night, Adam. (laughs) Good night, Adam. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.